Genesis chapter 22, Genesis 22, Uh, tonight we'll be studying verses 15 through 24, tonight we hear the conclusion to the story of God's command that he should take Isaac and offer him in sacrifice. It might be helpful before we read about that conclusion to just review that complex and confusing tale in verses 1 to 14. And I don't mean to hash through all the challenges of the passage, but it might be helpful to put it in mind. Remember, back in 22, beginning at verse 1 and 2, we saw God's command to Abraham and a testing of his faith. Verse 2, God said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, And go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will tell you. And what we saw there was, well, how perplexing uh, this command is, Uh, how shocking, how confusing. And yet we saw the pathway of God's servant was obedience. And Abraham got up early the next morning and he obeyed the Lord. He was tested. He was tried. He trusted God. He took Isaac. They went to the land of Moriah. How could he take the son he loves, the promised son, and sacrifice him and slay, as it were, the fulfillment of all the promises that had been laid on his son? It's through Isaac that the offspring would come, through Isaac that the descendants would come, through Isaac that eventually the Redeemer Messiah Would come. How could he slay him? And what we concluded was, as the writer of Hebrews concludes, that Abraham had thought it through. And he he loved his son. He believed God had promised everything in and through Isaac. And yet he believed that God had commanded him to do this thing and that ultimately these things were not in conflict. For as the writer of Hebrews said, he even believed. That God would raise Isaac from the dead if necessary. That his plan and his purposes would not fail. And then we saw that just as he was about to sacrifice him, verse 12, the angel of the Lord stopped him, calling out, Abraham, Abraham, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And so what we said there was that we're seeing Abraham is actually a pattern of God the Father's own love. When we see Abraham on Moriah willing to offer his beloved son out of loyalty and trust in God, we're reminded of the intensity of God's love for his own beloved, only unique son, Jesus, and what it cost the Father. To offer his son from a death he was not spared. The father gave Jesus over upon the cross to a death that Isaac was spared from even the wrath of God. And he did it in substitute. Now Abraham, we saw, noticed a ram. And having been stopped from sacrificing Isaac, that ram had been provided by God, caught in a thicket, as a provision to substitute as the burnt offering before God. And so 
there was a great exchange. The ram in place of the son. And the one died and the other went free. And there we saw the principle of the atonement. That comes back in Leviticus chapter 1. The burnt offering of Leviticus 1 is an offering of atonement. Where the innocent dies for the guilty and in place of the guilty. And so Abraham named this place, Mount Moriah, the Lord will provide. Because the Lord provided. And Mount Moriah, we said, is actually Jerusalem where God the Father sent God the Son to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world on our behalf. Now, this passage, uh, there's much there, and it points us ultimately to the Father and to Jesus and our salvation, but now we come to verses 15 through 24 and sort of the conclusion of this story. And what we hear tonight is God's commendation of Abraham. What we hear tonight is... God's reiteration of his covenant promises to Abraham. And what we see tonight is Abraham gets assured at a deeper level of the father's love for him and of the father's certain accomplishment of his purposes for him. And so I want you to hear then God's word from Genesis chapter 22, beginning at verse 15 and following. Here, now, The word of God. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son. I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men. And they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived in Beersheba. Now after these things, it was told to Abraham, Behold, Milcah also has borne children to your brother Nahor. Uz, his firstborn. Buzz, his brother. Kemuel, the father of Aram. Chesed, Hazo, Pildash, Jildath, and Bethuel. Bethuel fathered Rebekah. These eight Milcah bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother. Moreover, his concubine, whose name was Remah, bore Tabah, Gaham, Tahash, and Ma'akah. Amen. This is God's word. May he write it on our hearts. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but your word stands forever we pray that you would bless us by it give us life and health and confidence even before you in and through your word so speak we pray for your glory and our good in jesus name amen i think one way to consider this passage is to think of it in new testament terms where jesus you might recall tells a parable about a faithful 
servant. And what does he say when the servant is faithful with the talents God had given him? He says, well done, my good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. I think that's what we have here in a way. God building Abraham up in assurance of his goodwill to him. And God strengthening him in assurance that all God promised him will come true. And assurance is something that every relationship craves. I was reading just this week about Princeton Seminary professor Charles Hodge, who on Christmas Day 1849 was saying his last goodbyes to his dying wife Sarah. In her final weeks, he personally nursed Sarah, spending countless hours simply lying next to her during those times. He held her hand. He conversed with her when she had the strength, the depth of their love remained so intense that Hodge later commented about it. To the last, she was like a girl in love. Well, during her final weeks, Sarah asked Charles Hodge, her husband, to tell her in detail, quote, how much you love me. And they spent time recounting the high points of their life together. Hodge's last hours with his wife were particularly poignant as her life ebbed away. Sarah looked at her children gathered around her and quietly murmured, I give them to God. And then Charles asked her if she thought him a devoted husband, to which she replied as she sweetly passed her hand over his face, There never was such another. She said, tell me again how much you love me. And he said, tell me again, have I been a devoted husband? Relationships long for this kind of reassurance. And in Genesis, God here with Abraham is reassuring Abraham. God doesn't need it. But Abraham surely does, and so do we in our relationship with the Lord. And I want to highlight four ways from just this passage. God assures his people. He does it by repetition. He does it by oath. He does it after obedience. And he does it over all obstacles. Let me walk you through these things. First, in verses 15 to 18, God strengthens our assurance by repetition of his promises. That's the lesson we learn. Maybe you heard that repetition. Verses 15 to 18, the angel of the Lord calls from heaven and says what? Because you've done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, verse 17, I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply you as the stars of heaven and as the sand that's on the seashore. Your offspring shall possess the gate of their enemies and in your offspring all the nations of the earth will be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Now think of that. Doesn't that sound familiar? (laughs) Well, if you've been with us since we started this study in April, I hope that it does. You just go back to Genesis chapter 12 and much of what is here was first proclaimed there. Genesis 12, 1 to 3. 
Verse 17, here I will surely bless you. That's Genesis 12, verse 2. Then the middle of verse 17, I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. That's Genesis 15, verse 5. And at the end of verse 17, and as the sand of the seashore. Now that adds a new comparison to captivate his imagination. But it adds no real new content. For after, after all, in verses chapter 13, verse 16, he said, I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth. As the dust of the earth, they will fill the heavens as many as the stars. They will fill the earth like sand on the seashore. It's all one piece, a mass multitude. And then at verse 18, in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Well, that's just Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. It's just a lot of repetition. Mostly, there's some new things. Why? And if you're tired of hearing all that, okay, you've been hearing it since April. But remember that Abraham in Genesis 12 first heard it when he was 75 years old. He heard some of this again along the way when he was 86 with the whole Hagar issue. He had to be reassured. He heard it again when he was 100. He's now somewhere in his 110s because Abraham or Isaac's a teenager. He's hearing this again, and I'm sure he never got tired of the reiteration of these promises. So why all the reiteration? God repeats himself because God's people need to hear him say the same thing again and again and again. No one is so strong that they only need to hear just once that they are loved. If you're married, you know this. Your spouse needs this. Your spouse needs you probably to say every day, I love you. Time and again. They need to feel that promise with their body. With your body. I'm yours. You are mine. Don't despise them because they need you. If you're a parent, your children need it. I love you to the moon and back. We say, well, I love you to the sun and back, our kids reply. Well, I love you to the sun and the moon and the stars and back a million times, we reply. In our house, my shorthand for that is, good night, I love you, child. I love you too, me. I love you more, child. I love you most, me. I win. I win. I win. They love me most. This is great. They laugh. They go off to bed, hopefully believing the truth that daddy does indeed love them. And daddy delights in their love. Well, God repeats himself. Not because there's any weakness in him. Not because there's ever any question that he will do what he has promised to do. But because his people... His children, we, through our weakness, are prone to doubt and prone to forget his love. And so he reiterates it. He reassures him just by saying it again. Now he does more than that. He strengthens Abraham's assurance by oath. And he does so for us too. Verse 16, notice actually how he began. And this is something new. By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord. 
because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. Do you see what's new? The Lord says, Abraham, I swear by myself. Now, that's interesting. It's a strange phrase. It's picked up in one other place in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 to 18, in a paragraph about assurance. And just listen to the language. Hebrews chapter 6, beginning at verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor for the soul. Do you get that? God's oath is a little different than human oaths in two respects here. When we swear to something... We come to the end of an argument or the end of a promise and we want to make sure the person we're talking to knows we're serious. We might say, so help me God, right? I promise to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth, the court calls us to say. So help me God. We invoke him as a witness for us or a witness against us. We do that because he's greater than us and we say God because there's nothing greater than him. There is no one greater than him by whom we might swear. There's no one greater than him by whom he might swear, so he swears by himself. That's the first point. But secondly, when we swear, why do we swear? Well, we swear because of of human character flaws. We swear because we really don't trust each other to just say the truth and mean it and have it be the full truth. We take an oath because we're more likely or sometimes likely to tell a lie rather than tell the truth. But God takes oath, the writer of Hebrews says. He takes an oath not because of his weakness, not because of any defect in his character, but because of the weakness of our faith. We're slow to believe. We're quick to forget. We're easily led into doubt. And so he takes an oath. I promise, Abraham, I will certainly, I swear by myself, do these things for you. It's meant to assure him. That's the second way God assures us. The third way, God strengthens our assurance after obedience. Did you catch this at both verse 16 and at verse 18? It is, it is uh, emphasized twice Look at verse 16. By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing. And then look at verse 18. Because you have obeyed my voice. When did God swear and swear the oath? It was after Abraham did this thing. 
When had God promised him these things? It was before Abraham had faith and before Abraham obeyed. When did God strengthen Abraham's assurance? It was after Abraham had believed and after Abraham had obeyed. The promises themselves are certainly a gracious gift. They first came to him when he was in Ur of the Chaldeans, southern Mesopotamia, below Baghdad, and his father was an idolater, and he served other gods, Joshua says about him. These first promises, the promises first came to him, not when he was a good, upstanding, believing, and obedient Christian or Old Testament believer, But he was an idolater from a family of idolaters. And God called him and graciously rescued him and brought him to himself and gave him these precious promises. That's how they came at first, before faith, before obedience. Now they come again after faith and after obedience. Now listen, you can certainly be assured the very moment you believe in Jesus. You know, the thief on the cross said, remember me, Lord, when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, truly, I say to you, this day you will be with me in paradise. And the assurance from the mouth of Jesus looking him in the face was immediate. The reiteration of the promise. But sometimes our assurance is strengthened over time after we believe and obey. Now, don't misunderstand. Abraham never merited salvation by obedience. He'd been already called. In Genesis 15, he had believed and God declared him to be righteous, not because of his obedience, but because he had in faith believed what the Lord promised him. And the Messiah's righteousness, that that offspring that was coming, That is all the righteousness you need to fit you for heaven to be welcomed before the face of God. You can't add to it. You can't subtract to it. It's a perfect righteousness. Jesus is the righteous one. He's our righteousness. It's a free gift. It's a gift you receive through faith. Now, when we get to the subject of assurance in our lives that we are, in fact, part of the righteous, part of the believing community, When we get to the issue of our own personal assurance that we possess what is promised. That we are the recipients of what God has promised to bless us with. On that issue, faith and obedience do come together to provide greater strength of assurance to us. Because obedience evidences true faith. And is the fruit of true faith. And is the fruit of God's work in, workman, uh, work in us. We are work, God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works that we might walk in them, Ephesians 2 verse 10. Now look, if you're created for good works and uh, you, are saved by, you are saved by grace for good works, it means you're not saved by your good works, but unto or for good works. Obedience isn't opposed to faith, it doesn't weaken faith, it evidences and strengthens faith because true obedience happens as we trust the Lord and his promises. And as we look to the Lord to help us do what he commands. Remember, how did Abraham even get through this trial? He believed the Lord. He believed in the promise and the hope of the resurrection. That was his strength. 
Faith led to obedience. Obedience exercised faith. Both evidence God's grace. So that those who think salvation is by obedience, I have to say, end up frustrated, envious, and angry. Frustrated at themselves for not perfectly obeying. Envious that God blesses people who don't perfectly obey. And eventually hating God for his exacting standard and seeming cold shoulder to their, well, admittedly feeble efforts. But salvation is all of grace by the obedience of Christ. And those who know it have joy in Jesus, energy for serving him, and happiness when he blesses others. Because it's all of grace. And here, the reward of his obedience was assurance, reassurance, a strengthened assurance of the covenant promises and the covenant blessings. If you want to walk in assurance in your relationship with the Lord, Walk with him and not against him. Walk in faith and obedience. That's the message of 1 John. 1 John chapter 5, verse 13. I write these things so that you who believe in the name of the Son of God may know that you have eternal life. The Apostle John says Jesus gives you eternal life. He says it's possible to have that life and to know that you have that life. It's also possible to have that life and to be in doubt about whether you actually have that life. To be uncertain, and he writes so that you would be certain to have assurance. So he writes them to help them be assured. What does he tell them to assure them? Well, just as in a couple of examples, 1 John chapter 2, 22, 23, 23, no one who denies the Son has the Father, but whoever confesses the Son has the Father. It's a kind of a doctrinal test. Do you believe in the Jesus who is? There's also this, 1 John 3, verse 14. We know that we have passed out of death and into life because we love the brothers. In other words, the assurances of the promises are directed at the graces of God in us that evidence faith and a changed life. Believe in Jesus. Love other believers. Not because believers are easy to love. But we love them because Jesus loved us and he's made us one body with one another and he's put his love in our hearts that we might love one another. And those who have those things, they haven't purchased salvation. They haven't placed God in their debt, but they have had their assurance that they belong to God strengthened. Like Abraham. Abraham, because you did these things. Let me remind you what is yours by grace. Now the last thing is this. God strengthens our assurance, not only by reiteration, not only by oath, not only even after obedience, but he strengthens our assurance that no obstacles will get in the way of all that he has promised us. Not enemies, not weakness, not circumstance. Three things. Notice verse 17, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. Part of the promise here is new language no one will ultimately stand in the way of enjoying what God has promised it refers immediately to the people of God who were cruelly enslaved in Egypt and are going to return 400 years later to Canaan and possess Canaan as God promised but it looks beyond that The risen Lord in Revelation chapter 1, verses 17 and 18 says, Fear not, I am the first and the last. 
and the living one. I died. Behold, I'm alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. The enemies of death and Hades are not locked against him. He opens and he closes those doors. He holds the key. No wonder Jesus could say, I will build my church in the gates of hell. Will not prevail against it. So nothing can stand in the way against Jesus and therefore against his people from inheriting all his blessings. Even the whole world you will possess even the gates of your enemies. No obstacle. Not enemies, not weakness. And here's where you get this strange turn of the story to verses 20 and 24. And a kind of side note that seems out of place where suddenly it's all over and then he's hearing about his brother and his massive family. Verse 20, 24, after these things it was told to Abraham, Behold, Milcah has borne children to your brother Nahor, Uz and Buzz and all the rest. I love that. I love that. Hilarious. My kids have permission if they have boy twins to name them Uz and Buzz. They don't need my permission. Plus, not only the eight from her, but the concubine. This is a kind of another secondary wife. He had four more children. He's got 12 kids in all. This is Abraham's brother back over in Mesopotamia. Why all the ink spilled about Abraham's brother's family? Well, consider this. My Old Testament professor, Ralph Davis, put it this way. Do the math. You have Isaac verses 12. Almost nothing versus massive fertility. God's chosen people appear fragile, few, flimsy, and unimpressive beside the vigorous growth and strength of the non-promise line. God's people can look pretty unimpressive and like a hopeless bunch. So don't get overly worried when Christ people in the world don't seem to have dominant or flourishing or recognized or esteemed or tremendously significant influence in the world. Their insignificance is par for God's course. This is a kind of reassurance to Abraham. He's just got the one. It's going to be okay, but there's a third obstacle that will not stand in the way, and that is circumstance. The writer has included a parenthetical note. Did you catch it? Milka's youngest son, Bethuel, fathered who? Rebecca. And that's the key item, I think, in this passage. It's looking ahead to the days when Isaac will need a wife. Now, Bethuel and Rebecca are some 900 miles away from Abraham and Isaac. They're in Mesopotamia. Abraham and Isaac are in southern Israel. But God is in control. I was telling someone this week about how I met Melinda, and if you'll indulge me for a moment. We met at summer camp in Cincinnati, Ohio, We had both gone there to be camp counselors as college students. I was from Cleveland, Ohio, I don't know, a few hundred miles north, but I went to school in Southern Ohio at Miami University, and I didn't know what I was going to do with my life as my my classes were winding up, but I thought I was going into ministry. I wasn't ready to take a church job, but 
But summer camp sounded like a great opportunity, and a friend told me, she was part of a church about an hour south in Cincinnati, that somebody was up on campus interviewing college students for a position at summer camp. And so I interviewed, and I took the job, figuring I'll figure out what I'm supposed to do with my life over the course of the summer or get started on it. Well, just before camp that summer, I attended three weddings that May. The best friend I had in high school, the best friend I had in college, and my college roommate of two years all got married on three separate weekends in May, and I was in two of the weddings and at all three, and it looked great. It looked fabulous. <laughs> Who doesn't want a fabulous wife as all these men found, and, and yet I had nobody, and I was lonely, and I was vulnerable, And I realized it would probably be a bad idea to go out and make something happen quickly by Ted's will instead of waiting on the Lord. And so I made this irrational decision, you might call it, to, or maybe it was good, to take the summer off, to not think about girls and just, you know, do the job camp counseling kids and have a good time and then come back to it. Well, of course, that was the summer. I met Melina, and Melina was from Oklahoma City, some 900 miles away. And every year of her life, her cousins who lived in Cincinnati and her aunt and uncle said, would you like to come up and be a camper with us? It's so much fun. And she said, no way. Would would you like to be a junior high leader in training? Would you like to be a senior high leadership person? Would you like to be a college student leader? Nope, 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 except for one year. Just that year. And after her parents dropped her off in Cincinnati on the way out of town, her dad turned to her mom and said, I hope she doesn't meet some boy from Cincinnati. I was determined not to meet a girl, and her dad was hoping she wouldn't meet a boy. And here we are. That's providence. God works it out. There is no obstacle or circumstance or enemy or anything in the way. No human weakness, nothing that can stand in the way of God doing what he intends to do for the blessing and well-being of his people. And so Abraham went home to Beersheba with Isaac. And was God any more committed to him then than before? No. Was God any more committed to fulfilling his promises than he had been at the beginning? No. Was he any more sure of himself as the God of the universe? No. But Abraham was more certain. And you can be too. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are faithful and open-handed and generous and have made massive glorious promises that are all yes and amen in Christ and then you make us alive, bind us to Jesus and everything he has is ours. Oh, stir that hope and confidence in us. In Jesus' name I ask it. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing and praise the Lord.